I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Celebrity Memoir Book Club. In 10 seconds or less, go. A podcast where two best friends are talking about the news. Jesus Christ, no. <laughs> For the love of God, that's not what this is. This is two comedians who are actually enemies in many ways, <laughs> laughing about things that have no journalistic integrity. We are reading celebrity memoirs, giving you our hot takes, summarizing them for you. If you don't want takes, if you don't want laughs, if you don't want snark, I get it. I wish I wasn't stuck in this hellhole <laughs> of a judgmental brain. But you are. You're stuck in there. But you can go. Seeped in tar. My head is tar and I hate it here. It's just acid corroding from the inside out. You can save yourself and I would love that for you. But if you stick with us past this point, it might get a little bit snippy. And sticky because of the tar. Tarry, sticky, melty, burny. Like a s'more, but toxic. I was going to say like a UTI, but everywhere. Anyway, that's what you're getting with this podcast. If you don't like that, God bless. I'm jealous of you. But if you do like it, we appreciate the five-star reviews and we read the names of our five-star reviewers at the end of every episode. So gosh bless you. And you guys, as always, up top, we've got the Nikki's Unisex Comedy Show every Thursday in Williamsburg, 7 p.m., completely free, new comics every week. We love meeting the worms who come out. It is the joy of my life. Come chat, hang out. Come alone, come with a friend, make a friend. Also, as always, we've got merch. And as always, we've got... Oh, this is... Tomorrow! Yes, this is the last episode you will hear before our GMT-style live show. It is March 16th, 7.30 GMT, 3.30 EDT. We are reading a Cassie David essay. I'm so excited to see everybody and have the engagement of a lifetime. And everybody else, we are working on the tours. People have been DMing us being like, I can't find dates. And that's because there aren't any. We're working our little bottoms off. If anybody has a venue that they own in a city (laughs) in America, feel free to DM us and we'll work something out. We're sending all the little emails our fingers can muster. We're working on it for you. We want to meet you guys so bad. And I'm so excited. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity. Yes. And you were to write a memoir, what would the chapter of last week be called? I don't want you to yell at me. Are you going to be like, I was sad until I did something I liked and it reminded me that doing things I like makes me happy. No, I'm calling it off with corporate Ashley. Sure. Okay, here's the thing. I feel like I've had a lot on my plate the last few months. And here's the thing that I realized about the way corporate jobs work right now is that they all function perfectly as long as no one has any problems. Like with the companies I've worked at before when they've like dwindled down teams to the bare bones. It's just like, yeah, this bare bones team works, but having those extra people was important if anyone wants to go on vacation or get sick or does anything. This team cannot function if one piece is out of place. Mm -hmm. And that's like the toxicity of corporate America right now. And I was creating a toxicity of corporate America within myself where all of the things I was balancing are perfectly fine until one thing goes out of whack. And I'm like, I actually can't handle all of this stuff. Like this week I was sick and I was like, I can't handle freelance work and podcast work and puppy stuff if I am not feeling 100%. So I have to let go of something. And it's the puppy. I'm just kidding. It's freelance work. Why would I be mad at you? I've been begging you to quit those jobs forever. I know. Well, I thought that you'd be mad at me for like realizing it like an idiot. I can't tell you anything. You won't. I know. <laughs> Yesterday, I was talking to somebody who was about to tell me something and Ashley walked up to us and goes, wait, what are we talking about? I go, I don't know. We're about to find out. And she goes, yeah, yeah. But what, what are we talking about? I go, I don't know. We're about to find out. And she's like, but she looks like she's been crying. And I go, I know. She's about to tell us why she's been crying. And Ashley fully just wouldn't believe me that we hadn't heard it yet. Because the way the conversation was ramping up, it looked like there had at least been a foundation laid. I wanted the foundation. I didn't realize that there was absolutely no foundation yet. It was really just a one sentence uttered back and forth. Like, I I didn't realize that. I know you were trying to tell me, but do you see how confusing that is? I was specifically telling you. What you were picking up on was that she was upset. And I said, oh, no, are you upset? What's going on? And she was like, well, and then you came up and kept being like, what did I miss? And I said, nothing. You're like, but why is she upset? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Well, now we know. (laughs) Anyway. And we're better for it. Claire? Yeah. If you were to write a memoir about your week, what would last week's chapter be titled? Bottom of the next ladder. Okay. Okay. So somebody that I don't even like that much and don't think (laughs) is particularly smart one time said this thing that I was like, well, that's good. I'll take that. And he said that success is not one giant ladder. It's a series of ladders. And every time you get to the top of the ladder, you're like at the bottom of the next ladder. Yes. And I do think that's very accurate. I feel like the way I've been using that in my life is I do think when you're working towards something, you have this idea that at some point it'll get easier. Like you're working up the ladder and at some point there will be like a good shoot. Yeah. And I think instead what happens is that a lot of times you move on to the next ladder and then all of a sudden 
there's like a whole new mountain in front of you. Yeah. And so we had our live show last week. I had so much fun. Thank you. We haven't said it yet, but thank you so much to everybody who came out. I had like the best time of my life. I hope you guys had the best time of your life. I think we all had a good time. I had an amazing time. I'm going to confidently say we all had a good time. The laughs were loud, but I definitely feel like, you know, me and Ashley have been doing this podcast a year and a half. We've been growing it as hard as we can. And I don't know what I keep expecting, but I do think you keep expecting there's going to be some point where it'll all level off and be easy. And it never is. And I feel like at first I had this feeling of being like, this is the feeling I've been feeling for the last 10 years. I've been trying to do comedy or whatever, seven years. But I had to be like, no, the situation is different. Where we're at today, I'm like so grateful for everybody who listens. And we have so many more listeners than last year. But the feeling will never leave. Like if you're constantly pushing yourself, there will always be that like uncomfortable growth of like, oh my God, I got to learn a new skill. Like I'm trying to be optimistic and be like, instead of feeling like, oh, I'm stuck and it'll never be enough. Just being like, no, if you're always walking upstairs, it's always going to be this feeling of like, growth and stuff and I'm grateful and lucky to feel this way because it means that I'm not stagnant I think reaching a good feeling and then getting comfortable there would be bad it happens to everybody you'll always be in a new situation and you're lucky to be in it so that's my feeling yeah that's a good feeling and now should we dive in to this week's book who I think is in my opinion a beacon of optimism in your opinion a dullard with no taste I never said no taste just a boring dad. <laughs> Dave Grohl, who actually yesterday, what did you call him? Steve Grohl. <laughs> I said, do you want to start working on the Steve Grohl outline? <sighs> okay. So to disclaim up top, I'm a huge fan. And I know that we say never be a fan of anybody. Here's the thing is it's okay to be a fan of music. I don't think it's okay to be a fan of people and this book left me wanting quite a bit but it also gave me a few things and I think that there's something to be said for that I mean me and Ashley fought yesterday over this I might have been a bit aggro we each have our own take we will be presenting those takes there's nothing wrong with this book but as somebody who is a connoisseur of the celebrity memoir there's not a lot right with this book. I am trying to bring to him the same aggressive anger that we bring to women because I think that that's only fair. Yeah, that is fair. Should we call my dad for his take? Yes. Hey, dad. What do you think about Dave Grohl? Everybody loves Dave Grohl. And what are your thoughts on the Foo Fighters? Everybody loves them. Do they have one of the best music videos you've ever seen? Uh, maybe the best. I feel like I'm really pulling teeth here. I feel like you've told me a lot of thoughts on Dave Grohl before. <laughs> I, think they're, I think they're great. Everybody loves them. Thanks. Bye. I hate to say it, but I feel your dad's call just backed up my point that this is like a deeply uninteresting man. <laughs> yeah, I think that his whole thing is being like one of the most liked people in rock and roll. And I think we see a lot of things that happen possibly because of that probably because of that. I guess let's just dive into the book, into his childhood. I feel like he is just like a guy and that's why it feels so disappointing because there's not like that crazy rock and roll story. So everyone wants different things from memoirs and books. And I think as we've read more and more memoirs, my working theory for what scratches my tongue, so to speak, yeah, is... I want you to be vulnerable and open up and like get into yourself. I don't need a first person account of a Wikipedia. And that to me is like, what is a good memoir? A memoir is you give me your side of the story. You give me your psyche. You do some emotional work. And even the people who won't do the emotional work, like you look at an Anna Ferris, she didn't, but I could still enjoy that because she put so much out there that it was like psycho. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. What I like is to get to know like a soul as opposed to, I call it a proper noun biography. Yes. Okay. Here's my thoughts. Cause you compared this a little bit to JLo and Judy Greer, which are two of the most boring, nothing books we've read. And I think that what he at least gives us is his passion for music. Like we see a kid who loved nothing more than punk rock, who like made his dreams come true. And then you get these experiences later on that like as a music fan, you're just like, holy shit, that's the coolest thing. He is deeply optimistic. He loves rock and roll and I think that that like comes through and it's fun to read for me. But I will say like there's not a lot of personality in here. There's not a lot of like 
vulnerability. There's no vulnerability. But I think it's because like you're calling it a Wikipedia page. I think it's like a tiny bit more than that. And I think it's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit. Like yes. that's it. I wouldn't even say Judy Greer or J-Lo. I would compare mm-hmm. it to Betty White. Okay. But I think you get nothing from this book that you couldn't have gotten if you had been in the room watching it happen. Right. This book could have been 100 pages shorter. It could have been even just like a listicle, honestly, of like top 10 coolest Dave Grohl dinner parties. Yeah. I mean, it's very proper noun. And like, and then I met yeah. this guy and then I went to this hotel and this person was here. And to me, especially because these people don't mean a lot to me, there was not a lot there. And I guess there's nothing wrong with it. And I right. agree with you. There is nothing wrong with this man. There's nothing wrong with this book. I will say the ghost writer did a great job. I really want to get into the intro because he delivers exactly what he says he will. Each chapter is a perfectly constructed nugget of like, small memory use this to get through an entire theme it's, cr- right. it's like well done but to me there was so much more beyond the surface that I wish he could have gotten into and yeah we'll get into some of the things that I wish he'd gone deeper on I think if he had been a woman the things he left out would have been unacceptable and so I'm mm-hmm. trying to like bring to him the same judgment that we would bring to a woman where you would not be allowed to be a woman putting out a book that gives you so little of what happened behind the scenes or your personal life I guess I I disagree a little, not entirely. I think that like a woman, I mean, I think with Betty White. Betty White gave us a lot more about her personal life and her relationships. He mentions his wife by name once and then he has an entire marriage that he only refers to in a single clause. He goes, plus my marriage was deteriorating. He doesn't even mention that he was fully divorced. He talks about his kids a lot, but he literally says the word Jordan, who's his wife of like 20 years or something once or twice he never refers he calls her the queen of his world at one point okay but that's I mean I just think he words. doesn't I don't think that there's like anything interesting about their relationship like I think that they just like met fell in love got married had kids like I don't think that there's I don't think she's any like great muse I don't think that there's anything interesting to talk about but that's fine but I, even Betty White had to get into each of the guys she married why they divorced I mean yeah. to have a personal memoir and not mention your wife in any way except for that, like, she is one of the proper nouns that happened to be in the room. Right. I guess I, I don't think that this was supposed to be about his personal life. I think it was supposed to be about his, like, musical journey, and it was. And I hear you, but I'm just saying I actually would stake my life on saying no woman would be allowed to do that. I just think we haven't, like, read a one that did it. And we have read 70 memoirs. I know. <laughs> so I'm just saying. I. But I'm saying, like, some of the female rock stars that he mentions in this book. Like, if Joan Jett gave us this book, I would accept that. I'm sure you would, but would an editor. So we'll have to get, True. we'll get a female, we'll get, we'll find a female rock star of his caliber. Yeah. Courtney Love is coming out. If Courtney Love came out with a book that had nothing to do with her personal life and was only a book of like the song she does. Courtney Love is not a great rock star. Courtney Love is a headline. Okay. But so, all right. So we'll find a great female rock star and we'll do her and we'll see like if, if Stevie Nicks gave me this book, I would also accept that. And I hope an editor would too. I honestly don't know that they would. And I also feel like Stevie Nicks would go deeper just because like that's, her songwriting style and like who she is but I mean he says that all of his music comes out of heartbreak yeah but like but that's what he says and then he doesn't give us any emotional vulnerability so I'm just saying I don't know fine find the book and I will say acceptable but until you show me a woman yeah who is allowed to say here are all of my career accomplishments and nothing about my life I am going to hold this man to the standard we hold women. Okay, that's fair. And I think that this book does have certain moments where I'm like, well, that's just braggy and annoying. There are certain parts where I'm like, shut the fuck up, Dave. I get it. You're so great. Congratulations. But then there are other stories where I'm like, this was cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) And I also really like the passion about music that comes through. He clearly loves music. And I think that from like a comedy perspective, reading someone who gets off on like rising through the ranks and experiencing the highs of live performance like that, I really liked reading about that. Okay, so the intro. Dave Grohl was born January 14th, 1969. He is currently 53 years old and this book came out in 2021. So it is a celeb favorite pandemic book. (laughs) So he wrote it at 50 to 51. It's very new. And he grew up in Northern Virginia, where I think he currently still lives. This is how it starts. Sometimes I forget that I've aged. My head and my heart seem to play this cruel trick on me, deceiving me with the false illusion of youth by greeting the world every day through the idealistic, mischievous eyes of a rebellious child finding happiness and appreciation in the most basic, simple things. I literally highlighted that and went, so serious. (laughs) So serious. He says... I've never been one to collect stuff. I do collect moments. So in that respect, my life flashes before my eyes and through my ears every single day. In this book, I've captured some of them as best as I can. 
These memories from all over my life are full of music, of course, and they can be loud at times. Turn it up. Listen with me. And I do think that that's what he gives us. In terms of construction and writing, this book is beautifully constructed and each chapter is like an incredible nugget of a small specific memory and the way that the theme of that memory played out over the course of his life, but it still stays chronologically cohesive mm-hmm. in the master story of his life. Right. So I like give them a lot of credit. It is well-written. Yes. In that chapter, he talks about being in a room with two older rock stars, one of them who looks very tanned and stretched and freshly toothed and another one who looks like an old rock star and he's like I want to be the old rock star like I don't want to be someone who's like clinging to youth in this way that like at a certain point hits a point where people are like well you're clearly old and now you just look ridiculous like we talk about this all the time of like trying to keep up so hard that you end up looking older yeah that was interesting to me I feel like he has like some real feminine vibes Yes. And also, I would say the number one thing he wants you to know, and he starts off chapter one with it, is he is a great dad. Yeah. And I think, again, the bar for women and men. <laughs> if a woman were ever come forward with a book about how she is the greatest mom alive. I mean, she we would have get, read women say that they're the greatest mom alive. No, we haven't. Demi Moore was like, all I was was a great, like, all I tried to do is be a great mom. <laughs> We've read people say it and he does show it. They are saying, I was a good mom. I don't know what happened in response to the fact that they lost custody. <laughs> the thing that David Grohl, da- is he David or does he just go by I mean, Dave? His, he goes by Dave, but his legal name is David. And <laughs> The thing about those women, and I bring it back to, he has so much privilege in that his private life has remained his own. Those women have to say it to fight for their lives because they have been smeared publicly for how bad of a mother they've been. Yeah. He has it very easy where we only know what he wants to give us and he does not want to give us anything damning. Right. He very cherry picks moments in his life that he was a great dad. He never gives us anything seedy. You know what I mean? We only know what he tells us. And so the bar for male rockers right now is most of them come through and like brag about assault. And so the fact that he isn't outwardly bragging about assault, I'm not saying he has assault to somebody, but we're like, well, he didn't say that he got anyone blackout drunk and then like prodded her all over. So yeah, he must be the best person on earth. Like that is such a low bar. It is such a low bar, but I feel like he does also do good and nice things. He does go above and beyond for his kids as like a touring musician. Like, There are stories that we'll get to later where I'm like, I do see what you're saying, but it does also seem like he puts a lot of work in to be there for his kids as much as possible. No, and I agree. And I think most of the single moms we read about do too. And it's just like still not enough. Do you know what I mean? I think like men start at zero and every good thing they get is like an added point. Whereas women start at 100 and just keep losing points no matter what. Yeah. Women are just out and out expected to be a good mom. Whereas when Dave Grohl talks about being a good dad, we're like, how great is that, that he's a good dad? Anyway, so we start with his intro to drums. He would go to this jazz club with his mom every Sunday. He's obsessed with his mom. He and his mom would go to this jazz club every single Sunday and watch the jazzers play. And he was so inspired by the drums. He started playing drums in his room. He approached the drummer at one point to be like, can you give me lessons but it was so expensive he did one lesson where he learned that he was holding his sticks backward and then was like all right I can't afford this anymore and he was also I want to say inspired by the Muppet animal which was Travis Barker's number one drum inspiration I do think it'd be interesting to go back through like the greatest living drummers today and be like how many of you guys were inspired by a Muppet because <laughs> it seems like a lot so far out of the books we've read two for two linguistically I was inspired by Swedish chef <laughs> Heard it through. That's why I murble gerble all my words. <laughs> they also would do this open jam thing at the jazz club where you could just sign up to like go play an instrument with them and do a song and people would go up and like show off their skills. So for his mom's birthday, he went and played drums with the band and was so humiliated. He was just like, I'm just going to do the basics, keep time. And they were like, who the fuck is this kid? But it was for his mom's birthday and like being up there, he just really enjoyed the moment, even though it was like humiliating. He was like, next time I come back, I'm going to be like good at this. So he really dedicated himself to teaching himself drums on a pillow in his bedroom. He would just listen to records and drum along with them, which ends up really coming in handy for him later on to know all of the drums of every record he's ever liked. 
So he grew up, his parents were divorced. They got divorced when he was young. He was mainly raised by his mom. She was a teacher. He does love and worship her. He says that she was his best friend. We never had much, but we always had enough. He had a very like typical all-Americana upbringing in the suburbs, playing t-ball with his friends, getting scraped up. He talks about, you know, his first love, Sandy. He broke up with him. Like a week in. After she broke up with him in high school, he had this dream where he was like a rock star and she was looking up at him. Skater boy. Yeah, exactly. And wanted to fall in love with him. And the next day he decided that he was going to pursue this. He says, what could be more inspiring than exposed nerves of a wounded heart? In a way, I cherish my numerous heartbreaks almost more than the actual love that preceded them because the heartbreak has always proven to me that I can feel, which I think is a really kind of dark line. Like, he never talks about being this emotionless guy, but to be like, I have to get my heart ripped out to prove that I can feel. Like, I think he does romanticize heartbreak, and that's probably why he doesn't talk that much about his current wife, because I think he just doesn't value good love. Yeah, I think he's like, all right, this is comfortable. He says that the heartbreaks were what pushed him into music. He has an older cousin who's really just a family friend who lives in Chicago. One summer when he's 12 years old, they take their annual summer trip up to visit and she comes down the stairs and she is a punk rocker. All of a sudden, like last year, she was wearing shorts and t-shirts and this year she was wearing combat boots. She brought him up to her room and just introduced him to record after record of the underground punk scene and it forever changed him. And I also, not credit to him as a man, I'm not like trying to give him credit in any way. I just really like that it was like a girl who was his intro into the punk rock scene and a platonic female friend. Like I think it is cool that this girl was like way cooler than him. She takes them to a show in town at the Cubby Bear. And it's extremely DIY. Upon closer inspection, I noticed one glaring difference from all the typical classic rock albums that I owned at home. None of these albums were from any record companies I'd ever heard of. On the contrary, most of them practically looked homemade. They featured Xerox covers with dark, pixelated photos, handwritten lyrics and credits, silkscreen logos and graphics. This underground network somehow existed entirely outside of the conventional corporate structure and defied the ordinary manner of manufacturing and distributing music. These people were doing it themselves. He had one of those moments of, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And so basically he drives back to Virginia and is completely changed. Yeah, so he immediately goes off to devour the underground scene. He had only really heard of mainstream record labels and the bands on them. And now that he knew that this underground world existed, he was searching for it. And when you're looking for it, you can find it. It's not like that far underground. So he writes, In one summer day, I was forever changed and now understood that I didn't need the pyrotechnics, lasers, or impossible proficiency of a virtuoso instrumentalist to become a musician. The most important element of rock and roll had been revealed to me in Naked Raygun's performance, the raw and imperfect sound of human beings purging their innermost voice for all to hear. Yeah, like I have nothing against him. And I, like you said, I also am a sucker for the DIY bands that come up. Like I relate to that with you. Yeah, and I also really love that it does take this moment of being like, hold on, you don't have to be polished. No one has to invite you. You can, if you want to do something, just go out and do it. And I think that that's exactly what he did. And I just find that really sweet and inspiring because yeah, that's what we did. And I I remember having that exact realization when I was living in Los Angeles that like no one has to invite you to do something. You can just like go out and start going to open mics. You just show up and you can figure it out yourself. And I don't know. I just love that moment for everybody and I hope everyone has that moment where they realize they can do what they want to do the altar was set the candles were lit the ritual was prepared I quietly sat down on the floor facing the makeshift shrine that I had constructed by hand with scrap wood and leftover model paint cleared my mind of all thoughts and began to pray I don't know exactly who I was praying to but I did know exactly what I was praying for success from an early age I did believe very deep down that anything was possible if I devoted myself to it entirely there's a theory out there that most musicians decide their creative path in life between the ages of 11 and 13 This is a golden window of opportunity where independence and identity intersect, a most treacherous phase in any child's life where you become your own person, no longer just your parents' accessory, a time to discover who you are. He says, when your heart, mind, and soul cannot control or refuse the desire to create sound or lyric or rhythm, and you are helpless against the burning impulse to purge these inner demons, you are forever committed to a lifetime of chasing the next song. So then he says that he develops synesthesia at this point. He said, having no true music training, I didn't refer to the sound as notes on a paper. It became shapes that I could see in my head as I listened intently to the multiple layers of instruments, like colorful building blocks stacked upon each other. Music became something that I could see, a neurological condition known as synesthesia, where when one sense is activated hearing and another unrelated sense vision is activated at the same time. I read that and I find that like very interesting. I didn't know that you could like develop synesthesia later in life. I thought that just like was something you had or didn't. And then he like never talks about it again. Like I literally was like, is that true or is he using this figuratively? 
I mean, I think it's true because he doesn't have any formal training. And when he talks about the way he composes music, it's that sounds like how he does it. But I guess that's another thing I'm like, well, that's interesting. Can we get more into that? I don't know. Yeah. This is such a throwaway line that I almost don't believe him. I get that. I think he's using synesthesia the way Khloe Kardashian uses OCD. Because <laughs> he doesn't super get into his songwriting experiences ever again, I think. Well, I'm going to get into that later in the transition between Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. He also uses DNA as a reasoning for a lot all the time throughout this book. He was talking about trying to like understand other drummers' signatures, basically, and was like, it's an irreplicable DNA. He talks a lot about like what's in his DNA, that there are certain things that just can't be explained because they're in your DNA. And it's like, I do wish he would stop saying that because scientists have figured out DNA. He goes, there are certain things in my life that I relied on unconditionally and in which I had unwavering faith. The love of my mother, my love for her, and the love that filled my heart when I played music. So that's kind of who he is. That's his childhood. Yeah. He's like a little outcast who loves his mom and loves music. Can I say one thing that really annoys me about dudes? Yeah. All male memoirs that we've ever read and also men that I know, whenever they're explaining being an outcast or different or alternative in their youth, they talk about being like a skinny little kid. I was like, I was scrawny, I was skinny, I was, and it like comes up so often. And it's like, maybe it's because I'm a girl and I'm like, I don't understand why you think like saying that you were skinny means that you had like the hardest childhood. That is just a prepubescent boy's body. Yeah. Like no one's muscular except that like one muscle kid. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I was the most muscular boy in my fifth grade class. Yeah. There's also something like he has a group of friends that he plays with every single day everybody's like I was an outcast I only had four to five good friends and then a couple of like tangential mutuals that I and it's just like, how many friends do you think 11 year olds have it's an awkward time yeah so there is this underground band that he is a huge fan of called scream and when he's in high school he's in a band with two of his friends they have like a fun thing going he honestly stands by their work he's like I think we were actually really good says so they were ahead of, they were ahead of their time if they had come out like 10 years later they would have been successful yeah which maybe, I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure those guys read this book and they're like, oh, okay, let's give it a go, Dave. Okay, so he's in a band with two of his friends in high school and then he's at a record store and he sees a flyer that Scream is looking for a new drummer and he's like, what the fuck? Scream is the hottest indie band in Northern Virginia. Yeah, and so he calls them and is like, hey, I'd like to audition for Scream. I'm 18. Or he says he's 21. And they were like, sick I guess come by and he comes by because he thinks he's just going to get to jam with Scream and then it's just one member of the band they play together and then he does well enough that they're like all right come back for round two where he's going to get to play with the whole band well what happens is he goes to play and they're like what do you want to play ACDC Led Zeppelin and he goes we could just do Scream songs and they're like well which ones do you know and he was like all of them so this is the first time that the fact that he practiced drumming to all of his favorite records came hugely in handy because he just knew the drum part for every song ever so he was able to really easily slip in they call him back to practice with him they love jamming with him and they're like do you want to join the band they don't know he's 17 and he's still in high school So he says no. He says, for me to upend my life and join Scream would mean leaving school to the dismay of my public school teacher mother, sacrificing the already strained relationship I had with my disapproving father, and quitting the band I had started with my two close friends. It was a gigantic leap of faith, to say the least, with no guarantee of any kind of safety net. It was some scorched earth shit. So he is too scared. And he says no. But then like a month later, they're playing a show in town and he decides to go see it and watching them up there. He's like, God, I have to be in this band. So he calls them back and is like, I fucked up. Can I still be in the band? And he kind of has to convince them because he had already been not dedicated. (laughs) But they say yes. And he has to sit his parents down and be like, I want to drop out of school while I do this. And I will say reading this, I was like, this is an amazing opportunity. Why wouldn't you do it? He keeps calling them like an internationally known punk band. I thought that they were a lot more successful than it turns out they actually were. And I wonder if he thought that. Too. Well, I was going to say, I did find this endearing because I can definitely relate as a young comic, like the local hero being like, wow, I can't believe I'm getting beers with this person who crushed that open mic. And then you're like, oh, they are fully homeless. So he's in one of his favorite bands now. He sits down his mom. I mean, his mom's a teacher and he's 17 years old, about to drop out of high school. And apparently... He had been doing really badly at high school. So it wasn't like he had a ton of promise. But basically, she says, well, you better be good. And so she's very supportive of him. She's so sweet. But then he goes to his Republican dad. And his Republican dad, like, drags him to the school. The school counselor and the dad ream him out and are basically like, your life is going to go nowhere. You're a loser. Stay off the drugs. And he's like, his dad disowned him. Yeah. And he's just like, fuck you, dad. I'm doing it anyway. So then he takes a job in town 
while they rehearse and get their shit ready to tour and this makes me wonder why he couldn't stay in school I thought they were like leaving on tour the next day I don't understand why if they were still in town they couldn't schedule their rehearsals around like school's not that much time I mean can imagine Scream was waking up at like 6 a.m. right like are you telling me that this punk band was rehearsing before three I think missing like a few days a month of school and still having a high school diploma is maybe worth it I mean, you'd, you'd be wrong. I know. I mean, I know he's Dave Grohl, but I'm saying if this had gone any other way, like if he had stayed in Scream forever. Anyway, they put an album together. They start touring and he is living it up, touring with these guys who are all quite a bit older than him. He brings his best friend from home, Jimmy, as his drum tech. And he keeps Jimmy as his drum tech for until the rest of Jimmy's life. And he talks about how fun it was to really lose his mind on stage every night he was always breaking equipment because he had learned how to drum using pillows just drumming on pillows in his room and so when he had actual equipment you like don't actually need to hit the drums that hard they're like built to make sound yeah they're like supposed to be loud so when you smash them they just smash (laughs) the bassist sat him down one day and was like we're gonna learn control and he just had like one session with this guy where they learned how to control his drumming and then he was just like forever changed scream does eventually go on tour they do like the whole country in 35 days or something they're doing 20 shows in 30 days in tiny little diy venues and they've done this diy route before so the band knows people in every city so for the most part they're like crashing on the floors of other punk rockers Sometimes they sleep in the van. They're living off of seven fifty a day. He loves it. He's 18. It's the dream. I feel like it's like an 18-year-old's absolute dream, but then the rest of the band is like 30, and it's like, oh, boy. They go to Europe twice. They do all the scenes there. They'll like go out to Amsterdam for $99 and then work random manual jobs for a couple bucks until they can afford to get to Paris or something and then come back. He does this for about two to three years. So when he was with Scream, at one point they were doing this show at a venue where they were like, all right, you guys – have to do sound check at noon and then leave and then come back for your show at nine. And they were like, why what's going on? And it turns out there was an Iggy pop album release show and Iggy pop was going to be there. And he like lost his fucking mind. Cause Iggy pop is like a godfather of punk rock. And he's like, please, can I say, please, can I say, please, can I stay? And they were like, no, you can't stay. So they just like go sleep in the van while they wait between sound check and the show. And then at one point someone comes and knocks on the van and is like, who's your drummer? And he was like, me. And he was like, do you want to come play with Iggy Pop? And he was like, fucking of course I do. And so he thought it was just a jam session. But it turns out they were like rehearsing to play together for the record label later at the album release party. And once again, his knowledge of every song's drum part came into handy because he'd been drumming along to Iggy Pop songs for so long that he just knew all the songs except the new unreleased song. And then he got to play with Iggy Pop in front of a bunch of label people, which was really fucking cool and then the tour went on at one point they were in Los Angeles and one of the bandmates was very unreliable as you said these men are all 10 years older than them it is not fun at 30 to be living off of seven dollars a day sleeping on your friend's sister's couch and so I guess people would just come and go they'd often have to cancel gigs that night and it got to the point where they were canceling so many gigs that he had no money and he didn't know what to do One day during this time of just kind of living on the ground in Los Angeles with no way home, no way out, Dave gets a call from a friend saying, if you've heard of this band Nirvana, they're looking for a new drummer. Here's the number of the bass player. And he was like, of course, I've heard of Nirvana. Bleach was already out at that point, which was their indie record that they'd put out before their big label debut. A landmark record in the underground music scene, blending metal, punk and Beatles-esque melody into an 11 song masterpiece that would go on to change the landscape of alternative music. While coincidentally costing $606 to make. He calls Chris and is like, hey, I heard you're looking for a drummer. They'd met before when Dave was with Scream in Washington And he was like, yeah, I guess if you're ever in town, come by. And he was like, fuck, I don't have enough money to leave this basement. But he just like puts it all in, packs up, leaves, scream. He calls his mom and says, should I leave this band? And keep in mind, he already left his first group of friends for scream. And he was like, yeah, they were pissed, but sorry. And then he was like, should I just leave scream? And his mom's like, you have to put yourself first. And he's like, well, if my mom said it, what am I going to do? Let down my mom. So he leaves. And then once again, there is no follow up. I really am curious about how scream reacted to him leaving. Because he does a whole emotional thing about how scream had been his family. I felt a loss that I had never experienced before. I missed my home. I missed my friends. I missed my family. I was now truly on my own back to square one starting over. He says he left them behind in a sinking ship. 
he said it pained my heart in a way that I'd never felt even more than saying goodbye to my own father when he disowned me for dropping out of high school. We had always been in this together all for one and one for all. And we had overcome so much shit, but there was a finality to this new crisis that made me question my future. And so he left, which is like fine. But I do wonder like, like it was obviously the right decision. Yeah. And you're allowed at 22 to say, OK, if we're in a band that isn't playing gigs, I have to keep finding somebody else. And clearly he stayed on good terms with most of them because Franz was in the Foo Fighters for a while. But I do wonder what the immediate fallout was. Me too. I'm very curious about it. So he goes up to Washington and joins Nirvana. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's pretty famous. It was the fall of 1990 in Olympia, Washington, and I had just received my first check as a paid member of Nirvana, a whopping 400 bucks. So he goes up there, I think, in the spring. They live in some shitty little one-bedroom apartment. It's him and Kurt Cobain. He sleeps on the couch with the turtle. He can't sleep because the turtle makes a lot of noise. Yeah, Kurt Cobain loves turtles, by the way. I don't know if you guys knew that. (laughs) I didn't. And I will say, if you're looking for more interesting facts about Kurt Cobain, they're not in here. That's the one you get. He left one band that's living in an awful shitty situation for another band that's living in an awful shitty situation. But Nirvana had a lot of promise at that point. After Bleach, they were talking to every major label, essentially. And it was really just them deciding which one to go with before doing their next album. They're practicing songs constantly because they know once they sign with a record label, they're not going to get a ton of time in studio. Yeah. So they're like getting as good as they possibly can. He joins in September and October they sign with the David Geffen label. Mm-hmm. He gets his $400 and then they go and record all the songs that Kurt has been writing. At one point when they're flying around talking to different music executives, Kurt says that he wants to be the biggest band in the world. Dave said he thought Kurt was kidding. I think that that is a really interesting thing because obviously the success was really hard on the band. They also didn't play a lot of shows. Like they were just practicing for a long time during those seven or eight months in Seattle. Because it was really important to them to not like burn out their local fan base. And he also says that Kurt's writing style was he would just go into his room for hours and he never led on to anything he was working on. He was prolific. He would come up with like a song a day and then he would just show up at practice and just start playing something that they'd be like, what the fuck is that? That's so good. Yeah, and then they would just kind of jam into it he talks about never really feeling fully comfortable in this band but he did get to know Kurt's style so well that they could just riff together and he would know when Kurt was about to launch into a chorus and be able to set him up with like a good drum intro things like that it all just kind of came together after signing with the David Geffen label they went back to Los Angeles to record at Sound City in Van Nuys which is a very legendary recording studio and it was also cheap so in a few days may 2nd to 19th they recorded all of nevermind they also had played smells like teen spirit for the first time at a live show up in washington and for a band who like the crowd knew most of their songs they were nervous to just like shoot something new at them and the crowd reaction was fucking insane and they were like all right this might have promise so they released that next fall 1991 first they released smells like teen spirit And then the entire album two weeks later, and they set out to do a tour of America in venues that hold like four to six hundred people. Right. Which is for a rock band, not huge. And for a rock band that was about to become the biggest band in the world, they like couldn't even play. Once the song started picking up steam, getting played on radio and MTV. Once they like penetrated the mainstream, they became the number one song. It was out of control. At the same time, though, he was still on a $15 per DM, which he was like, I felt rich because that's double what I was used to. But meanwhile, they are the number one song in the world. They're the hugest band. And so he just talks about all the crazy experiences that were happening and how he could see that Kurt was starting to freak out because people would just rush the stage, break stuff. They were breaking stuff. Everybody, Everything was out of control. He also talks about the feeling of going from a punk rocker who like created their identity on being alternative to becoming mainstream he says all of those years of being a punk rocker renouncing mainstream music crying sellout to any band that moved even slightly toward mainstream success had turned my music loving heart into a confused and calloused lump within my cynical chest i'd become jaded and judgmental often not knowing what was okay to like or dislike based on the rules of cool culture in the punk scene yet i also rejoiced in the fact that more and more people were showing up to share this music i loved and took so much pride in making and playing it was an ethical dilemma, one that would prove both inspiring and destructive to the band. So they go on their month-long tour. By the time we returned to Seattle for our final hometown show on Halloween, we were completely exhausted, both mentally and physically. We had left our mark and made it back with scars to prove it. In just 40 days, we had gone from three disheveled young men with nothing to lose to three disheveled young men with a gold record. Our worlds had now changed forever, and so had yours. And this was just the beginning. We were surrounded, and there was no way out. 
He talks about the crowds getting really unruly. He says they were used to like the craziness of punk crowds, but he said it was getting darker and different and pretty terrifying. But then he doesn't give us a ton. He like talks about how great it is to get a credit card. And he's like, we have more money. He gets to 1992 when they get to do SNL. And it's that's such a landmark moment for him because he grew up on SNL. Yeah. He says watching the B-52s on SNL was one of his top most inspiring music moments. He broke his drumstick immediately when he got on SNL, which was like tough for him. Yeah. And they all of a sudden have a ton of money. I mean, all of them buy a house somewhere when they go on hiatus. And he says they take like these seven month hiatuses where they go and do their own thing. And then when they come back, there's always brand new, very visible cracks in the foundation of their band. And he says the first time they returned together in 1992 to do their next album, they were able to patch it up fine by the end. But then he like doesn't get into 1993, really. He doesn't mention 1993 at all. He comes back. Having powered through SNL, he says, upon arrival in L.A. on the first day to the video shoot, I realized Kurt was unwell. He seemed frail and somewhat deflated. And the look in his eyes, it was clear that he had been getting high while away from the band. He says he never knew anyone who had used heroin before, knew very little about it. And when Kurt went to rehab, he was kind of just like, oh, well, then he'll be clean now. You know, you get addicted to drugs, you go to rehab, and then you stop doing drugs. And I will say that I feel like that is like a very common thought line in that day and age that's all he really says about kurt's drug uses he also says that there became a divide in those who use and those who don't but he leaves it there that's like the last he says of how the drug use impacted the band specifically the fact that he is not really a huge drug user right and he does like come at it very after school special being like i wanted my friend to be well but i wasn't sure how to help him anyway he looked bad he does mention a few times touring in 1992 and how it was clear that Kurt was coming completely unraveled he doesn't talk about what it looked like he doesn't talk about talking to him at all he doesn't talk about how their relationship evolved as Kurt fell deeper into this hole he just skips to 1994 and the day he finds out Kurt Cobain died he throws us this other line he says outside of my father's struggles with alcohol I didn't understand the true nature of addiction I didn't know the depths of Kurt's to be sure I had yet to realize that the healing required to free yourself from the grips of this kind of sickness is a lifetime of repair if you can hang on and stay out of the darkness. There was still so much to look forward to. We had only just begun. Outside of my father's struggles with alcohol, I mean, at this point, he mentioned sort of repairing his relationship with his dad after his dad had disowned him because at this point, he's a well-known rock star, but he barely mentions that. He has not until this point mentioned that his dad was an alcoholic. I mean... It's implied too that they had repaired their relationship only because he said at one point my dad came out to Seattle to help me buy property because he didn't want me to blow all my money in one place and constantly told me it's gonna end soon so enjoy it while it lasts yeah don't assume it'll go on forever so we get that little nugget of trauma and then we hear that Kurt's obviously struggling and then we just skip all of 1993 there's not one single mention of 1993 we just skip to him finding out that Kurt has died the first time He's gone, Dave. My knees gave out and I dropped the phone as I fell to the bedroom floor, covering my face with my hands as I began to cry. He was gone. The shy young man who had offered me an apple upon our first introduction at the Seattle airport was gone. My quiet, introverted roommate, who I shared a tiny little apartment with in Olympia, was gone. The loving father who played with his beautiful baby daughter backstage every night before each show was gone. This is the only thing he says about the fact that Kurt Cobain had Courtney Love or a daughter. He never mentions Courtney, which I will say that's one. Not mentioning Kurt's family, I will give him a pass on because, I mean, Courtney will take any nugget. As we saw from her recent Instagram caption, mentioning her name puts you on a hit list. Yeah. And I think that staying away from that makes sense. Also, not mentioning her name puts you on a hit list, but still. <laughs> he was told that Kurt Cobain had died, and then immediately they were like, oh, no, never mind, he's back. Which, I can I say something? Yeah. Something I'm deeply confused about, because this is like the third or fourth time I've heard this in a rock star story. How was communication being pushed out so quickly that within minutes, somebody could be contacted and told that their friend died, and then it's revoked? Like, they didn't have TikTok back then. They didn't have cell phones. phone trees. I guess you're just like home by the phone. But so he, and he says, this was my first brush with death and I was left utterly confused. I now knew the shattering pain of loss, but only for a brief moment before it was pushed aside like a hideous prank. My process of mourning was forever changed from that day forward. Losing someone close to me became a complicated exercise and waiting for that call to tell me that it was all just a mistake, that everything was fine. And then begging the pain to come to the surface when the phone never rang. 
So he says that like because this thing happened forever, he feels very removed from his emotions, which I understand. I understand that too. I think like finding out that someone that you're that close to is dead and then finding out they're not dead. And then so this is March 3rd, 1994, April 8th, 1994. Kurt is dead again. And he doesn't give any details here. Obviously, this is a much contested possible murder, possible suicide. So I get, again, not going into detail here. I don't know what I think happened. I don't know what he thinks happened. Obviously, this is very traumatic. He says news of Kurt's death came early in the morning of April 8th, though this time it was real. He was gone. There was no second phone call to right the wrong. And he says the shattering pain didn't come again. It was blocked by the trauma of a month before when I had been left in a state of conflicted emotional confusion. I don't remember much of that day other than turning on the news and hearing the name over and over again. Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain. I can't imagine having been close to a situation like that. Also, I think it's extra hard because Kurt was tied to the music that he was making. So now it's not just like the loss of a close friend. It's the loss of your entire livelihood. And also like your livelihood is based on the thing that you love most. And he talks about that, how conflicting it is to feel like playing music is a betrayal of his friend. But playing music is the thing he's dedicated his life to after Kurt dies. He spends a lot of time contemplating what's next because again there's like this guilt of returning to music he ends up fleeing to Ireland for a little bit where he sees a kid hitchhiking by the side of the road and he's like oh I'll pick up this kid he pulls over this kid in like the Irish what's it called countryside I think so is wearing a Kurt Cobain t-shirt and he's like all right I can never escape it I have to just go home and times like these we learn to live again he starts a new music project but he doesn't want anybody to like know really. He doesn't know what he's going to do. So he starts just laying down songs that ultimately end up becoming Foo Fighter songs. But he's just writing them for himself, playing every song alone in like his own recording studio. He decides he wants to do a new project, but he doesn't have a new band yet. And he doesn't want it to be like the Dave Grohl solo project. So he just calls it the Foo Fighters. But at that point, the Foo Fighters wasn't a band. It was just him. So he just does these things for himself. And then he gets this call and it's Tom Petty asking him to play drums with Tom Petty on SNL to be one of the heartbreakers from Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. So he goes and plays with Tom Petty on SNL, which was obviously fucking cool. And in doing that, he's like, I got to get back out there. Also, can I say something weird? He keeps on saying since the band ended. Very tepid wording for death, a tragic death that crumbled his entire life plan. He ends up making 100 cassettes with his music. He distributes them himself. And then this is another thing where it's like we go from him being like, I decided to DIY, put it under the name the Foo Fighters, just throw it out and see what happens. I didn't want people really associating me with Nirvana or he didn't want to be held up to the Nirvana standard. He didn't want to be known as the guy from Nirvana forever, which I think that that's why there's not a ton of Nirvana in this book other than like just the undeniable like I was in one of the most famous bands of the 90s and a part of this very iconic story. But he like very clearly doesn't want to be the guy from Nirvana. And he doesn't want this to be the guy from Nirvana's project. So he does this whole thing about how he DIYs these cassettes and distributes a hundred of them. And he says, the reward was simple. I did it for myself. But then he never really gets into what happened next. I think he was essentially his own nepotism baby. He wasn't starting completely fresh. He had connections. He had a resume record labels were going to listen to him if he wanted to talk about a new project. I know, but still I feel like he doesn't talk about that. He makes such a big deal about being like, I did this secret little project just for me. And it was a hundred cassettes that I just distributed to record stores just to see what happens. Cause I didn't want the big guys acting like this was some offshoot. And then all of a sudden they're just touring in Australia. And I do think yeah, there were steps for sure. I mean, he does put a band together And another thing that I find really interesting that he doesn't dive into at all is the fact that he originally couldn't keep a band together. It ends the chapter with he puts 100 cassettes in a cardboard box to distribute them for his own joy. That's how it ends. And I feel like, I mean, that is very specific underdog imagery of like just a shot in the wind. Who knows what will happen? And then the very next chapter, he goes, as we begin recording the Foo Fighters second album, The Color and the Shape, in the fall of 1996 at the studio outside of Seattle named Bear Creek, I sensed that my time in the Pacific Northwest was coming to a close. Not only had I always felt like a visitor, just another transplant in the city, fiercely protective of its precious roots, but the death rattle of my first marriage was in its final throes, casting a shadow over recording sessions in the deep woods of the darkest winter months lay ahead. So he really does go from, it was just me and these 100 cassettes, to suddenly he, he had a 
wife nobody talked about her yeah there's years missing there's putting together the band there's like there's a lot missing and then he goes into talking about nate who's like his main collaborator when he created the foo fighters saying that he was going to quit the band and he says i couldn't handle one more resignation and it was beginning to feel suspiciously like the solo project i never wanted it to be like why couldn't he keep a band together about somebody else he goes me and him were fighting because i went through and re-recorded his drum section so that's another thing i want to talk about is he went from being this kind of nameless faceless in the words of chris pratt drummer he wasn't a focal point of nirvana and he brought himself to the forefront with the foo fighters even though he didn't want it to be the dave Grohl project it obviously is like he's the only foo fighter whose name i know and he very much brought himself as a front man he doesn't play the drums in the foo fighters for the most part but he is obviously still a drummer so he went back and recorded his drummer's drums which is a really fucked up thing to do well even though so I don't know anything about Dave Grohl and I was like confused listening to this because at the beginning of the book he does some flash forwards and he talks about a time he played guitar with his leg broken on the stage and I'm like guitar but we're talking about drumming like I mean that's a decision in itself to say I want to write my own music I want to be the front man I want to be the drummer is he the singer for the Foo Fighters he does sing yeah I do think that those are huge things that are like I agree. left out. So my biggest gripes with this book, the biggest things that I feel are left out are not even necessarily vulnerability and emotion, but I want to know what happened in 1993. And I want to know about his decision to bring himself into the spotlight. I think that sophomore slump that he experienced on this weird level of like a sophomore band slump. He was yeah. in the biggest band in the world. How do you come back from that? Yeah. And he doesn't get into that at all. I don't know. I, I do feel like there was more in his decision not to join Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He was asked to become an official member as the new drummer for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And he declined that because he wanted to see his solo project through, even though he didn't want it to be a solo project. He wanted to see the Foo Fighters through. And I mean, he does have an interesting line about that. At this point, he's 25 years old. And Tom Petty is pitching him. He's like, look, you'll have your own giant trailer. We do like one show every two weeks. It's a super easy, relaxed, sure thing job. And he would have made a fuck ton of money. And he's like, I don't want to live a retired life at 25. I still like, I feel like I have more fight in me. And I want to be yes. like, okay, so what did you want to do? So that's the thing is I feel like the not wanting to live a retired life is part of it. But I also think not being another nameless, faceless drummer part of the band was a huge part of it. Like I think he wanted the spotlight. I think he wanted to become a name. And I don't think he could admit that to himself at all. Something that I know you said you liked that I actually felt was missing from the book was you were like, I liked that it's about the music. I don't think it's for musicians. I, I changed my mind. But I think it's for music fans and it's like about just being passionate about music. Like the way he talks about being so excited, discovering new bands and that feeling of being a part of something iconic musically. It's not about like the music theory, but mm -hmm. it is about like music fandom. Because there are a couple glimpses where he like gets into the music where he does this like White House dinner where he gives a speech about the who. Yeah. And what he says about the who I found so interesting. He talks about how like the drummer was basically the lyricist and the way the guy played the guitar was more like actually a drummer because it was very like rhythmic. And like that was so interesting. And I would have loved more about finding technicality. His, well, not even technicality, but like after coming out of a band like Nirvana that is so fronted by Kurt Cobain and he did like invent his whole style. How do you come out of that and differentiate yourself? And like, what was that process of being like, what is my voice versus his voice? Yeah. I mean, all that middle ground stuff of working it out. So also supposedly Dave Grohl had like a bigger part in co-writing some stuff with Kurt after Nevermind came out. So like for their next album, what was it like to write music with Kurt Cobain? And like, why is that not in here Specifically, all? all he says about Kurt's writing style is that he would go into his room and just come out with a song. So he doesn't give you any of that. And again, I can't confirm that because it's not in this book. And obviously Kurt doesn't have a book. So I don't know if that's true, but I'm pretty sure he said it before. And I've seen that on the internet that he like had a bigger role in writing after Nevermind. And I, it's like, why isn't that in here? And I think that he's really trying to distance himself from the guy from Nirvana. I think it like still hangs over him really heavy. Yeah. But but then, like, give me more of the birth story of the Foo Fighters, I feel, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. Instead, he gives us this whole chapter about how he doesn't know how big an acre is. Like, he spends a lot of time talking about moving back to Virginia afterwards in 1996 and, like, buying a giant house and wanting to build his own recording studio in his basement and stuff, which is, like, great. But, I mean, when I say pages and pages are dedicated to him telling his real estate agent I want 400 acres and him not knowing how big that actually is. Yeah, it turns out he wanted one and a half acre. <laughs> So then he has 
kids, him and his wife, Jordan, his second wife, Jordan, who he doesn't talk about meeting and doesn't talk about marrying, but it does seem like he loves a lot. They have a, a baby girl. I just find that so interesting because then he talks about his kids nonstop. And if I was going to keep anybody private, it would be the minors. Yeah. And not the adult. I think it's just like not interesting. And also, I will say I'm going to post this on our Instagram, but I did see a blind item that he cheats on her like crazy. I believe that. And so I wonder if it's just one of those things where he's like, if I don't, I think that if he was like lovingly talking about his wife constantly and then also cheating on her, we'd be like, what the fuck? But maybe they have like a gentleman's agreement. I do think he is obsessed with his daughters. Oh, yeah, that comes through. He's very obsessed. (laughs) So in this final phase of his life, he talks about not knowing how to become a family man and have a band. And he assumed he'd have to give up the band. And then he goes to Neil Young's house and there's like he's in this like idyllic farm where Dave Crosby was sitting by the fireplace. Brian Wilson was wandering around lost looking for his wife. Tom Petty's band was on the porch and Neil's kids were all hanging out with all of us. This was not a formal rock and roll event at all. This was a home. This was a family. This is what I wanted. And now I saw that it could be possible. And that's what I mean by this book is just a rock and roll hall of fame journal entry. Like it is cool to just like look at these moments in rock music that happen behind the scenes and be like, well, they are just like pals. Like he is really proud of his friendship with Paul McCartney which like is braggy, but also like if I was friends with Paul McCartney, I would probably mention it. I actually didn't mind the way he talked about Paul McCartney at all. Me, I felt like either. he came at it with the perfect amount of, yeah, we're friends. And so I'm going to give you some inside scoop, but also I'm obsessed with him and I think it's cool too. But the rest is very like balancing dad and rock life. He's talking about writing songs with John Fogarty. Am I saying that right? I think it's Fogarty. John Fogarty. Yeah. <laughs> John Fogarty. John Fogarty and having <laughs> to leave. This is the Swedish chef coming through. <laughs> <laughs> and having to leave early to go to breastfeeding class. And then once he has his daughter, he feels like the circle is complete. Paul McCartney gives his daughter her first piano lesson. He's really proud of his daughters and their like inherited musical abilities. <laughs> it's all the DNA, baby. I mean, the last like 100 pages are this time I did the Kennedy Center. He talks about being at the Kennedy Center with all of like Republicans and Democrats. And he goes, I surely didn't agree with all the policies and principles that some of these people spent their days bickering about. So I took my mother's advice and avoided three topics that were always told not to bring up at any dinner table, money, politics, and religion. This was a weekend where everyone could recognize each other as something more than Democrat or Republican. And I do think he's had a lot of success in his later life. Like he talks about being brought in to sing a song at the Oscars to to host something at the Grammys. He's always like being brought in by the white house. And I do think he is just a good guy who will show up sober and do the job he was asked to do. But it's not very rock and roll to be like, look around. We have differing opinions, but who cares? Let's just enjoy our fancy clothes. Yeah. He talks about some other like hiccups and tough moments. He did get a DUI in Australia and he like really details the event as the most vanilla DIY of all time. Not DIY, DUI, <laughs> whatever. He DIYs a DUI. He did. <laughs> he got he, it. He did it himself. He was like on a moped. He made it. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm sorry. I forgot how truly boring he is. So he has this entire chapter called Life Was Picking Up Speed. Oh my God. And this it's a, one I hate it. It's about how he had to go to the hospital because he was having a heart attack and it turned out he just like drinks a lot of coffee. First of all, I don't believe it was just coffee. Like there's no way that you were acting like a true maniac. Like I drink a full pot of coffee every morning and I don't think I act like a maniac. Tell me if I'm wrong. I will say at this point he's like in his 40s. It sounds like he wasn't getting a lot of sleep. He was in his, I don't know, his heart rate was raised and you know how men are when they feel even a little bit sick they're like I'm dying I don't know there just should have been there are some signs of like he couldn't keep members of his band in place he was like freaking out about stuff like was something else happening or was he really just like a guy who can't handle his coffee the back end really is like here's some cool dinner parties I've been to he talks about being outside of LAX And someone comes up to him and says, are you Dave Grohl? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, I've heard that the one person you ever wanted to meet was Little Richard. Is that true? And he goes, absolutely. He's the originator. And he goes, well, he's my dad. And he's in this car. You want to come say hi? So he goes and says hi and gets like an autograph from him. And he's like, wow, what a day. And you're like, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is. These are things that I like weirdly liked because I liked that like this at this point in his career, he was still like a dork about shit. Yeah. He gets really excited because his daughters have a Barbie of Joan Jett. Which feels, I mean, he bought it for them and like forced it on them and was like, this is your superhero. And they were like, okay. And then he got to introduce them to Joan Jett and was like, they met their superhero in real life. And it's like, I don't know that they understood the importance of that moment, especially if these are kids who like got a piano lesson from Paul McCartney and like 
hung out with Neil Young. I just don't know that they know that meeting Joan Jett was like an iconic experience. Um, and then like he has the daddy daughter dance, which is a story about a time he had a show in Australia. He was doing a string of sh- shows in Australia. He had to make it to a daddy daughter dance. So he like flew for 22 hours from Australia to LA to take him the He rearranged the date so that he could have like three days off and use those three days to do like two 22 hour flights, go to yes. a dance and then turn around really quickly, which is like, no, it's so, I mean, it's so great. I think I'm like happy for them that they have a really like, a good dad who shows up for them that's very nice yeah that's what I mean is like in terms of the dads that we've read a lot of them think that they deserve a pat on the back for simply like being home and he like moves mountains to be home which I think is nice he is not a person who can admit that he makes decisions for himself in this really weird way like whenever he has a hard decision to make he calls his mom and his mom will be like here's what you should do and he'll be like well what else could I do but listen to my mom even though she's like saying what he wanted her to say yeah she literally said do what you want and he's like I had to do what I wanted my mom told me to and then later when he's talking about playing Blackbird at the Academy Awards and he's so nervous and he like is he's like I was planning to say no but when my daughter got home from school I told her about it and she was like well of course you'll do it and he was like well now what could I do I'd been backed into a corner by my daughter and it's like if you genuinely didn't want to do it you wouldn't have done it you like brought it up to her to be like I did it for her it's like no you didn't you did it because you're asked to play a song at the Academy Awards and that's fucking cool and you wanted to yeah and so the book just ends with him being deeply grateful he's like playing in Chicago where he saw his first ever punk show he's playing at Wrigley Field which is is that not in Chicago yeah but like it's like crazy I feel like for Dave Grohl no but it's like really cool and it is Kitty Corner from the Cubby Bear, which is where he played his first concert. I feel like I just said that. You said in the same city. Okay. It's like more impactful than the same city. It's like we're sitting in my apartment right now. It's like if we sold out that apartment building across the street and we're like, wow, we used to record in that apartment just <laughs> out the window. Yeah. It's poetic. No, it's poetic. I do think in like like in New York City, there is a good chance that if we were to ever be successful, that would be near a place we had been unsuccessful. <laughs> I've done a shitty bar show and I mean at one point people were just doing bar shows on the street so yeah (laughs) like there's like not many places in New York that I could be far from where I had been a failure it's like if you had seen your very first I know what it's like (laughs) I'm painting a picture for the people if you saw your very first comedy show in the street on like 33rd and you were like, wow, comedy in the road. That's something I could accomplish. And then you sold out Madison Square Garden and you were like looking at 33rd and being like, wow, that road is where I first learned about comedy and that anyone can do it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the point is it ends with him being very grateful and loving his kids. It ends with him being very grateful, loving his kids. I thought it was like a very sweet and optimistic book about following your dreams and working hard and like never I also like that he never really like lost the stars in his eyes about being able to mix and mingle with rock and roll greats it is cute any other thoughts on our pal Steve (laughs) (laughs) Um, no I mean there's literally nothing wrong with this book there's nothing wrong with it there's a lot it left you wanting for sure it left me wanting it was really well written I mean I will say it's a breeze to write to read you yeah, didn't was, write it. <laughs> what if I did? That's why I keep being like, it's so well written. <laughs> no, it's a breeze to read. And it's, I mean, it's a well, it's a book that is a hardcover book. And I give it credit for that. Like a lot of these things were like, who the fuck said yes? Like somebody worked on this hard. Yeah, I will say, I think that if you are a fan of rock music or Dave Grohl, you will enjoy this book like it doesn't give you the deep seedy underbelly of rock and roll which we also read Marilyn Manson's book this week to do a podcast with the Zen Blonde which I think that one of the reasons I liked this book so much is because following Marilyn Manson's book I was like thank you thank you for not being like a repulsive piece of shit Dave which I probably gave him too much credit for but I do think the contrast was like very intense no it was a deep contrast if they were all Dave Grohl's there'd be no problems (laughs) Anyway, we have a show again every Thursday at Nikki's Unisex. Hope to see you there and hope to see you tomorrow at our Moment House show digitally. And we'll see you guys on the Patreon this week. We are, we have a new thing. If you have a TV show you want us to watch, like one of those trendy little streamer services, we will watch it. Let us know. We'll get through it for the Patreon. Last week we watched Inventing Anna. And then this week we're doing a deep dive on Anna Ferris and Chris Pratt, which we 
uh, had to reschedule from last week, but we're really excited to have Troy McKeady from Dunzo and Beyond the Blinds with us. So see you guys there. And thank you to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to Biz Lemon. We like them sour over here. Thank you, Cookie Crumb 95. Honestly, the best part of the cookie. Thank you. Ha ha he he ha ha ho. I appreciate you and Brittany, bitch. Thank you, all Nirvana. I hope this episode helped you reach Nirvana. Thank you, P's and KS. Mad respect to the veggies out there. Thank you, Cameron Smith. Keep capturing great shit with that cam. Thank you, Brant Weindorf. I don't think you're a dwarf. I think you're very cool. Thank you, Beefy Girl. Hell yeah, baby. Thank you for the protein. Thank you, Alessia Daniela. Don't scream. We do appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you, M. Jones 90. Crank it up to 100. Thank you, Hannah WW25. You are the worldwide 25 to me. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.